Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Today on the show, we're going to tell the story of two very large animals who in different ways and at different times commenced to wander. One of them is a young male, or was a young male mountain lion who wandered from South Dakota all the way to Connecticut. Uh, An amazing journey. More amazing than some of the other theories posited about what a mountain lion was doing on the Merritt Parkway in Connecticut in 2011. The other one is Buddy the Beefalo, who escaped from a slaughterhouse and then stayed escaped for eight and a half months. Uh, And it's also the story of a policeman who became affectionately obsessed with Buddy. We'll also just talk about wildlife in Connecticut. What's here, what's not here, how you should maybe think about that and act about it. Of the Mingwas, the Andosti, there were wolves, there were bears among rocks and trees. It was just a fact of life in this land. But the thing that put fear in the hearts of men was the scream of the cat, said William Penn, as he slept in the wilderness. A young man Call them panthers Call them catamounts Mountain lions All been hunted out Story So we're going to spend a certain percentage of the show today talking about mountain lions, but we're going to be talking about other animals as well, and we're also going to talk about two specific animals, one of them a mountain lion, who completed an incredible journey that ended in death in Connecticut, but started in South Dakota, and kind of unassisted by anybody, somehow this mountain lion managed to do that. Anyway, that's kind of the middle segment of the show today. We're going to wrap up the show with the story of Buddy the Beefalo. Also kind of an epic journey, although it was mainly around Terryville. Uh, but it was eight and a half months before Buddy could be captured. So, But we're going to begin with this whole question of what's out there, what's out here in the wilds of Connecticut, uh, and what isn't, uh, and what should, how should we think about all that. I just want to say I don't think mountain lions – like I, I've done shows about this before, and people who believe in mountain lions in Connecticut, they get really mad sometimes if you don't – if you if you in any way dispute their claims – but the reason that I don't believe in mountain lions in Connecticut is if, if they were here, they would have been up on my deck by now because everything else comes up on the deck. We've had bears, we've had bobcats, jackalopes, chupacabras, everything. We're on some kind of map that they hand out to animals. So, But no mountain lions. Here to talk in a somewhat more informed and sophisticated way, though, is J- Jason Hawley, uh, a wildlife biologist for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Uh, he is uh, one of the people who really looks at the question uh, of, um, of what's out there and what's not. Uh, he's the person who has to field a lot of the mountain lion calls. Before I even, before we even get to him, we, we should say that we 
uh, offered listeners the chance to r- record their own mountain lion sighting stories. So, Kat, let's play A1. This is uh, Anna Huther uh, talking about a cat she saw. In the early summer of 2020, I was working with a small team of people on a short-term job at a building in the Crown Corporate Campus in Milford. Few people were around as many offices had closed due to COVID-19. I was used to taking a midday stroll around the pond during my lunch break each day. About five minutes into the walk, though, as I reached the other side of the pond furthest away from the office building, I looked up to see a strange moving shape about 50 feet away. My immediate thought was, huh, that's too big to be a squirrel. Could it be someone's dog? But then very quickly I thought, uh, nope, that is definitely some kind of wildcat. Rather than backing away, though, my next instinct was instead to take out my phone and record the animal because I thought there was no way my coworkers would believe me. But then, during the 10-second recording, I noticed that the cat saw me. It started wagging its tail, and then it sat down while staring at me. It then truly hit me that this was a wild animal and that I'd better back away slowly and go back to the office in the direction from which I came. So, uh, first of all, uh, Jason Hawley, welcome to our show. Second of all, I'm guessing very little that's contained in that particular recording is surprising or new to you. This is the kind of call or report that you've been dealing with a lot over the years. Yes, and thank you for having me on the show. But yeah, that's... That's just another day here. We get we get calls like that on a I would say a daily, almost a daily basis. Very very similar calls to that. Yeah, so that's common to hear. And and how would you react to that? I mean, let's say that you were talking directly to her. What would go into your reaction? Well, it can be difficult sometimes, you know, because like you had said, people often get very emotional about it. You know, hey, I know what I saw. Um, I've seen bobcats before. This wasn't a bobcat. And it's a lose-lose situation because there's really not a whole lot you can tell them in most cases that's going to change their mind. You know, occasionally you run into the person that's just sort of ignorant. They saw a large cat that's larger than their house cat and they think, oh, it must be a mountain lion. And then you give them a little education. Well, we don't have a population of mountain lions here. We have bobcats. So there's a good chance you saw a bobcat you know some people will be like oh cool all right that's that's good to know but then i would say the majority of the people are very convinced of what they saw and they're almost they're not calling for your opinion <laughs> they're just calling to tell you this is what i saw and i don't care what you say or what the science says or what the data says so scientifically, this is a case where absence of evidence is kind of evidence of absence, right? One of the reasons we would say there isn't a, a mountain lion population here is mountain lions are big and they kill big things and they we're, we're all camered up in a way we never – everybody's doorbell has a camera and it, there's cameras everywhere. So we'd be seeing more carcasses of prey or we'd be seeing – at least some carcasses of mountain lion prey. We don't see any of those things, correct? Yeah. I mean, again, as a scientist, lack of evidence is, is very good evidence. And, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work over the years, investigating sightings. Um, People were convinced of what they saw. Um, We even had a sighting of, I'm not going to mention any names, someone here at DEP in my office that was convinced they saw a mountain lion. 
and you know it had rained previously he drove me out to the spot um it was kind of a flooded area so there's you know fresh mud in there and he said this is where the mountain line crossed we walked in there and there was fresh fresh bobcat tracks in there so um <laughs> you know it's anyone can kind of get fooled and it's i'm not an expert on human psychology but i think it's a lot of you know if you're looking for something you have a lot uh greater chance of actually seeing it so i think i think that's a lot of what's what's going on there's some ignorance where people just don't know what they're seeing but then you get into that sort of psychology side of it where you know if you're looking for something there's a much better chance you're going to see it because that image is in your head i've had it happen to me myself right and and there's a way in which first of all i think it's worth noting what you said about the person in dep because it isn't just some guy halfway through a bottle of Tanqueray. It is, I mean, you're a, you actually appear in William Stoltenberg's book, Heart of a Lion. He's going to be on in the second segment. He he talks about a meeting out in Heart, Heartland that I think you were at where there was like a an, local animal control officer who absolutely knew where the mountain lion den was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, I, I try to do my best. It gets a little difficult kind of, you know, explaining everything we know about mountain lions to each person that calls. That's why I like doing, you know, things like this where you can reach a greater audience, but you know, it's something we, when I say we, I mean, wildlife biologists across the United States know where current mountain lion range is. I mean, it's, you know, it's documented through um, track surveys, aerial surveys, um, trapping and collaring surveys, you know, the, and we know that the closest established breeding population is in either, you know, the Everglades of Florida, there's a small population down there. And then out in South Dakota and Nebraska, and those are the two closest populations that we have here. So um, quite a few barriers between here and there. Um, and that's kind of what made it so extraordinary that one animal that, that dispersed out here um, and we, we often use this as a great as a great example of how that animal was documented many, many times um, in many different ways along its travel um, up through Minnesota, Michigan into Canada, down through New York, um, through hair samples, blood samples, um, trail camera photos. Um, so it's just a really good story. It's, it's a cool story. Um, you know, just with that, how far that animal walked, but it's also a great story that kind of lays out how an animal this large at 150 pounds traveling through even rural areas, leaves sign and is detected. Um, so when you look at a state like Connecticut with all the people we have here, all the trail cameras we have in the woods, all the cars we have driving. Another example is if you look at Florida, they have between 200 and 250 cougars in that state and they lose about 10 percent of their population a year to uh vehicle kills mm -hmm. um you know that's like the number one threat to that population so you can imagine if we if we had an established population here in connecticut um we would know about it pretty quickly Right. So another thing that happens, and I think, you know, the growth of social media means that, first of all, people can share their perceptions. They can post pictures of stuff that they think is a mountain lion or, or something else. They can commit intentionally hoaxes where they, you know, post a picture from Casper, Wyoming, but it's, you know, they say it's it's Cornwall, Connecticut, and there's a mountain yep. lion. They can do all that kind of stuff. But there's also, I think, within the Internet, I know within the Internet, there's 
also a notion of conspiracy, that vital or interesting information about everything is being suppressed. Uh, and so, well, we, we got a little example of that. This is uh, Julia Cat. This is A2. This is another one of our reporters. About 10 years ago, I had just gotten home from middle school when I decided to go out to get the mail. It was just getting dark out, and I was home alone at my parents' house in a woodsy section of North Haven. After picking up the mail and leafing through the first few letters, I looked up and saw a giant cat sitting next to the garage, staring at me. I had never seen an animal like this before. It looked exactly like a lion, the same size and shape, except that it did not have a mane. The most striking detail was its long tail that swooshed in an S shape as it stared at me. Of course, the common retort to stories like this was that people like me were mistaking bobcats for mountain lions. Shortly after my sighting, there was a 2011 news story about a mountain lion killed in Connecticut that was apparently from South Dakota. Many of the Connecticut Cougars website users were skeptical of this claim that it was coming from 1,500 miles away and instead believed the state had an interest in covering up the fact that there were many more living among us. All right. So uh, we'll get to the whole thing, though. You've already talked about just the sheer improbability of what that cat did. That's obviously a double-edged sword because it allows people to think, well, it's so improbable. Maybe that's not what, what really happened. But I want to go to those kind of the last piece of what, and Julia's, you know, a listener who was kind enough to, to share this story with us. But there mm-hmm. is this kind of undercurrent of paranoia. And it to, best of, to the best of my knowledge, Jason takes two different forms. One of them is you guys are covering something up. And the more x filesy one is you guys brought the mountain lions in, uh, in black helicopters or something, so that they would, I don't know, reduce the deer population. I'm not exactly sure. But also because your job is already not hard enough, so you'd like to have some mountain lions. <laughs> uh, but I, I assume that's something you're running into quite a bit. Yes, it's very common. And I get it. You know, there's there's a lot of mistrust for the government. Um, but I think what people don't realize, you know, here at DEP, we are we are scientists first and we are bound by a code of ethics, you know, and as a scientist, your credibility is everything. If you lose credibility, you've lost everything as a scientist. And, you know, we have we're not politicians, we have no motivation to you know hide anything cover anything up i mean we present facts and we present science and you know that's that's actually the part of it that kind of bothers me the most when i when i sort of get accused of being involved in a cover-up because you know that's that's sort of an attack on my integrity as a scientist which i you know i take very seriously but and to expand on that you know you have to sort of think about this logically from that that whole conspiracy theory. Um, what would our motivation be for covering that up, right? There are native species here. Um, you know, they'd probably do a lot of good here as far as controlling deer population. Not to mention, as a carnivore biologist myself, I would love if mountain lions would here were here. I mean, we'd probably get more funding to research them put some GPS collars on them. I think it would be the coolest thing ever. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you how happy I would be <laughs> if, if mountain lions, um, you know, we're actually recolonizing the state of Connecticut, but it's, it's just not happening. 
you know, we had that one cat that came through, which again was so extraordinary that there, you know, we published a scientific journal on it. Will wrote, wrote a book on it. So that just shows you how unusual that event was. Right. So we'll come back to that cat in the second segment um, with Will. But uh, Jason Hawley, to console you, uh, you've got lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of bears. Um, so no mountain lions, but lots of bears. And the bears are it just seems that they are more and more habituated to us. They're breaking into cars. They're getting into houses. They come in. They play the piano. You know, I mean, it, what what's happening right now is that we are trying to learn to live with an extremely large wild animal who is also apparently trying to learn to live with us, too. So maybe mm-hmm. you can say a little bit about how that plays out on, on your end of things. Yeah, so... You know, here at DEP on our bear program, we're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place right now because, you know, we've got a growing bear population. And obviously, you know, we're one of the most densely populated states as far as humans. So it's sort of this this gathering storm, this recipe for, I don't want to say disaster, but, you know, it's it's um, it's becoming, you know, more and more evident every year that, um you know, we can do everything as far as, as far as educating the public, you know, how to, you know, take your bird feeders down, secure your garbage. Um, but there's, there's a couple of things that's missing, a couple of tools that are missing from our toolbox. We know how we can maybe not solve the problem, but certainly greatly reduce the problem. Um, and, you know, an all an outright ban on feeding dangerous animals. We know, is necessary because the problem is you can be in a neighborhood with 20 houses and 19 of those households are doing everything correctly. They're securing their garbage, taking their bird feeders down, being, you know, clean with scent around their house. But then you have one person in that neighborhood that doesn't care. They're selfish. They want to see the bears. They're feeding the bears and that whole neighborhood and beyond suffers because of, the actions of that one individual as far as habituating and food condition, food conditioning that bear. And that's the problem, you know, and a few individuals doing that can really create a large problem. They can habituate and food condition a lot of animals. And those are the bears that tend to become more dangerous, go into people's houses. Um, So, you know, A, we don't have that tool where we can, you know, stop that from happening and we really have no way to currently manage our bear population you know we look forward to working with the legislator hope the legislators hopefully in the future to resolve that problem through some sort of um, management but right now we just don't have that those tools so these bears they have no reason to fear humans like you know they just have no reason there's there's nothing bad that happens they only get rewarded when they're around humans you know through human human-based food. So right. it's, and it, uh, it's like it's not a stable relationship either. It's one where the bears, you, you, you have a lot more forced entries into houses now by bears because the more that the bears get comfortable, the more that the bears realize, as you say, that there's no negative consequence, the more stuff the bears are going to try to do. Yeah, exactly. It's just kind of like little steps, you know, give them an inch, they'll take a mile and they're taking, they're taking more and more. We're getting more and more home entries every year um you know we've had so many home entries this year and even the home entries are kind of changing it used to be a bear would go into a house when someone wasn't home 
Now the bears, they don't even care if people are home. They'll go right in the house. We have people eating dinner in their kitchen. They hear a noise. All of a sudden a bear walks in, so they run into their bedroom, you know, to get away from the bear while the bear's out ransacking their their refrigerator. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a problem that's that's only going to get worse. Um, so, yeah, it's it's quite an uphill challenge for us to manage that situation right now. So it is an uphill ch- challenge. And I'm assuming, I mean, whatever we're doing right now, it's not working. Uh, and there are different schools of thought about that. Let's learn to live alongside uh, this very large animal is one of the schools of thought. And there's another school of thought. Well, no, there just are too many of them. And probably we have to reduce that population somehow. Where do you fall in, in that whole continuum? Um, I mean, I, I feel strongly that we need a harvest here in Connecticut. So all the other states in the Northeast that have bear populations have a harvest on their bears. Um, They certainly have, you know, lower levels of conflicts and home entries than we do here in Connecticut. So I I believe, you know, with the amount of people, so it's, it's less about um, an ecological caring capacity in Connecticut. It's more about a cultural caring capacity, right? So like how much, are humans willing to put up with? If you can't let your kid go in your backyard without a bear walking up to them and trying to take their popsicle out of their hand, maybe that's too far. <laughs> I argue it's way too far. Um, so we've gotten to a point where, you know, you go up to Maine and Maine has the largest bear population out in the lower 48. My in-laws live up there. They put bird feeders out in their backyards all the time and bears don't come in and bother them because bears are afraid of people in Maine and they have good reason to be afraid of them. So, um, the, you know, a harvest is kind of twofold. It lowers the population in a way that's not going to affect the long-term population, but it also sort of instills that fear, uh, a healthy fear uh, of humans and bears. All right. So, Jason, actually, we could do like a whole show because there's so many other things to talk about. Um, but uh, I need to get to Will. There's one more question that I have to ask you or I can't go home because we have a dispute in my household about. So the the, the carnivore who's really learned to live alongside us, obviously, is the coyote. The coyotes are just, you know, I live a block from the governor's mansion and there's coyotes all over the place. Yep. I've had coyotes run 10 feet past me, you know. Um, and um, however... There is some question, not entirely analogous to the mountain lion debate, but not entirely different, about whether these are just coyotes or koi wolves or koi dogs or some kind of damn hybrid. Does DEEP have a particular position on that question right now? Uh, Well, it's not really, I wouldn't say it's my opinion. There's been a lot of work done on the genetics over the last, I would say, 15 years. Um, You know, yeah, people use all those terms, koi wolves, um, koi dogs. Um, really what we have here is called, it's the Eastern coyote. So it it is a coyote. And what happened when wolves were extirpated from the East coast, um, coyotes were primarily a Western plains species. And when they started expanding their range eastward, they certainly interbred with some of the remaining Eastern wolves. They, they hybridized with dogs. Um, so our Eastern coyote tends to be larger because of that past hybridization with wolves and they have quite a bit more um diversity in their in their coat color so you know sometimes you'll see black ones or reddish colored ones and that's primarily because of the hybridization with dogs that come along the way but they're still mostly coyotes genetically they're just a slightly larger 
version of the Western coyote that we have here. Right. So, so if I happen to live with somebody who insists that the coyotes out in our driveway are coy wolves, that person is obviously wrong and delusional. I don't want to put words in there. <laughs> but, um, all right. Well, listen, it has been great to visit with you, uh, and we'll pursue this some more. Uh, I hope we've introduced a little bit of sanity into all of this. Jason Hawley is a wildlife biologist for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Uh, and we're going to be back with Will Stolzenberg to talk about the mountain lion who died in Connecticut. Hills, the Black Hills of Dakota, where the pines are so high that they kiss the sky above. And when I get that lonesome feeling and a Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we are back. Uh, we are going to continue to talk about mountain lions. Uh, and to do that, we have with us uh, William Stolzenberg, author of Heart of a Lion, among other books, Heart of a Lion, A Lone Cat's Walk Across America. But just before we bring Will aboard uh, and to say a little bit more about him, he's a screenwriter, journalist. Um, let's hear from another one of our um, oral histories of, of mountain lions in Connecticut. This is actually from somebody we work with. This is very exciting. Uh, this is Jennifer Ahrens, uh, who works here. And here she goes. I live in Bristol. I've seen a mama bear and her three cubs walk down my street in the middle of the afternoon. I've seen a coyote stare at me from my front yard moments after it attacked my cat. So maybe that's why I believe my own eyes about what I saw several years ago. It was well past midnight, and as I walk by my living room window, out of the corner of my eye, I see a female lion. At least that's the first thought that jumped into my brain. So I froze, stepped closer to the window, and looked into my neighbor's yard. And there, right on the edge of the street, was a creature that looked just like a female lion, standing still, clearly pondering if she wanted to cross the street. Tall, sleek fur, this was not a bobcat. She made her decision, and I watched her, or it, casually cross the street, brightly lit up by the street light above, and disappear behind the arborvitaes. Yes, every day I kick myself for not running for my phone and taking a picture. And if you were wondering, my cat survived the coyote attack. 
So I was a little worried about the cat. Um, all right. So joining us now is, in fact, William Stol- Stolzenberg. Uh, the book is Heart of a Lion, A Lone Cat's Walk Across America. This is the story of this one mountain lion who really did make it to Connecticut, uh, all the way from South Dakota. Uh, an amazing story and, and really beautifully recounted in the book. Uh, Will Stolzenberg, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Hi, Colin. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So maybe just begin by, you know, reading the book, I can sort of feel you falling in love maybe is the wrong way to put it, but you clearly eventually, as you start to understand what this animal did, how far it went, how long it took, how many hazards were involved in it, ranging from crossing eight-lane highways to swimming across enormous rivers like the Mississippi, that this animal, there is something very special about what it did sort of almost more special than if it turned out to have defied all scientific understanding by being indigenous to Connecticut. Not being indigenous, coming from South Dakota, that kind of amazed you in a different way. Yeah, it, you know, it, it, it was funny. When I first heard about this, you know, the dead cat lying on a highway in Connecticut, you know, the first thing, it's hard to wrap your head around it. You know, you, you see the, the straight line distance between the Black Hills and, the you know, when they finally figured out where this cat came from, between the Black Hills and Connecticut, that's one thing. But then when you start actually retracing this animal's journey, which was what I set out to do, you just, and you actually visit some of the country that he he traversed, um, you just gain this, this sense of respect that you don't get from a, from a, from a soundbite. It was just uh, amazing uh, what he was able to accomplish with, with so many forces against him. Right. And in a way that links nicely back to our conversation with Jason, you do chronicle the moment where this cat really was hit by a car on the merit. And then immediately people are calling DEP people. And, and of course, everybody at DEP is going, it's not a mountain lion because they get these calls every day, except it is a mountain lion. Uh, and so maybe just talk a little bit about this particular, this is a young male. I think wildlife biologists sometimes call this a disperser. This is a young male that therefore is not going to stay in whatever kind of colony it's in. It needs its own territory and it needs a mate. So that seems to have been what started this whole journey, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, that is typical of, of young mountain lions when they come of age, about a year and a half or so, they're teenagers. And, you know, they basically, they either leave on their own or they get kicked out because if they stick around, they've got, they've got dad who's patrolling the area who will kill them. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty brutal world out there for mountain lions, but so yeah, the, that's what they all do. They, they go and they don't just go next door to set up their territory. They go far because they don't want to be in competition with dad and his roundup of, of females. And so, um, unfortunately, the, this this cat in South Dakota in the Black Hills, which is right on the very edge of the of the Great Plains, um, you know, most cats that are leaving from there, they're heading west uh, because you know that's where that's where all the mountain lion habitat is. But a few of them, unfortunately, head east, and that sends them across five six hundred miles of, of glaring prairie. So, yeah, that's that, he was looking he was looking for a mate, and unfortunately, he went the wrong way. And, you know, I, I remember at the time, I remember 2011 when all this was happening here in Connecticut. And, and initially, I mean, first of all, a lot of people thought, oh, it belonged to a drug kingpin or it was a pet or something. Uh, there were all kinds of different theories about it. But then I think one thing that didn't, even once we started to understand the biology of it and understand what was really happening here, I don't think 
the kind of stuff that's in your book was really clear even, I don't know, I was hosting this show at the time, and I don't remember saying anything like this, which was that ultimately this, this animal was seen a whole lot of times, right? It was detected 11 times, I think caught visually uh, on camera or something six times. It wasn't like it just disappeared from South Dakota and popped up here. Yeah, that was the amazing thing about it. You know, we we do know that these animals are really secretive and you can, you know, you can be a biologist and spend your entire career in mountain lion habitat and never see one. Um, but this one was just leaving his evidence like breadcrumbs right across the country. Um, yeah, there was uh, six pieces of DNA. I think there was actually 15 recorded instances where either they had, uh, you know, a camera, they had tracks, they had pieces of the animal, you know, hair, scat, um, urine, that sort of stuff. So yeah, I mean, he just he just did a, a, a wonderful service to to science by leaving all these this evidence of himself. But he also showed what that that's exactly what happens when cats like this come through. Is that you know they're not they they, they walk in front of a camera, they leave an image. You know they they walk on the ground, they leave a print. They're not vampires, right? They they are real animals on the landscape, and if they're there you'll eventually know about it, which is why, you know, that it kind of puts the lie to this idea that they're they're running, you know, all over uh, Connecticut, uh, right under our noses. Right. So another reason people get excited about mountain lions is that they're scary, even though, I mean, the number of mountain lion attacks in the last 100 years on humans is it's not a very big number. Let's hear another one of our oral histories here. Uh, this is Peter Cap. This is B1. Uh, my name is Pete Herman. I live in West Hartford. And about four or five or six summers ago, may even have been seven summers ago, I forget exactly. It was in July, I do remember that. And I was on the MDC Trail south of Route 44, which is across from Reservoir Number 6. And I was on a solo hike. It was about one o'clock in the afternoon, about three or 400 feet into my solo hike. And I spotted a mountain lion sprawled in the tall grass about 300 feet southeast of me. And he was in the meadowlands, which surround the embankment. And the embankment's maybe 20 feet higher than the meadows. And the grass was pretty tall, but I could see his head clearly when he lifted it to look at me. And I could see the tail, which is at least six feet from the ears, maybe even seven feet. Uh, it was huge. And uh, I've seen uh, more than a few bobcats. I even had one in my backyard once many years ago. Uh, this animal was much larger, and he had tan coloration. It wasn't spotted like bobcats. And uh, he looked at me, but I sensed, or uh, more likely I was just hoping, that he was drowsy and wasn't in the mood to stir. I just kept my bearing, uh, looking warily over my shoulder, hoping for the best. Uh, I knew if I moved fast, it would stir his, could stir his chase instinct or its curiosity. Uh, but I also knew that if it did decide to follow me, I'd be a goner. It'd be all over. All right. So uh, if Jason were here, I think he would say that the bobcats we have around here are not always spotted, but that's a whole other story. But I just want to get sort of to that part of the, about fear at the end. Uh, I'm sure that after all the time that you spent studying mountain lions and studying the people who study mountain lions, one thing that becomes clear, I think, is these are extraordinarily cautious animals. They are not looking for trouble. Uh, the likelihood that they're going to be chasing you through uh, a Connecticut suburban reservoir, I would assume, would be pretty low. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you consider that, you know, you're, you, um, Pete was lucky enough to actually to watch this animal, and apparently the animal watched him back. But that's pretty much what it is, and 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 a lot more percentage of the time, it's the animal watching you, and you never even know about it, right? So these animals, we're out west. People are walking three feet away from them on the trailhead without ever realizing, because we know, because we have 
collars on some, and and they're just there's never a you know I never say never, but hardly ever a problem. Um, that this fear, it's 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 a natural fear for people who aren't used to them. But you go out to California, and people are have kind of grown used to these animals because they never disappeared there. And uh, yeah, the, the, all the right things to do. I mean, we all know these things. You don't you don't run away. You don't act like prey. But basically, we aren't on the menu. We're we're a two legged creature, and these animals evolved to to hunt four-legged, big four-legged creatures. And, uh, you know, the fact that, that they're walking around uh, out there and the fact that we don't have more incidents should, should tell us that, yeah, we're not, we're not on the menu. And, and this, and for example, this, this cat that came all the way from, uh, from, from the Black Hills, think of all the dozens and hundreds of times he had opportunity, barnyards and corrals, people, he walked through cities. Um, he had any number of opportunities if he wanted to to be a nuisance or menace and take somebody, but no, he didn't. And that's the reason why we weren't on the menu. He was here looking for something else, was which was a lady cat. Right. So I, I think in your book you even mentioned speaking of LA, there was a mountain lion up in the grounds of the Griffith Observatory. So I mean it could have eaten Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone and it didn't. So um <laughs> Although, I mean, if it would have saved me having to watch that movie, I probably would have been in favor of the mountain lion. So um, we should talk a little bit about, so, you know, Jason was talking about how as a scientist, it would be very exciting if it turned out that there were mountain lions here. There there aren't. But it, it's not only exciting, obviously, but it's ecologically really interesting, right? When mountain lions come into an area, like a lot of, you know, megafauna, they make a difference. And, and the difference does seem to tilt towards you know, environmentally positive things. Maybe you could say a little bit about what you've learned about that. Absolutely. I mean, they are top order predators. And what we've learned over the last 20, 30, actually 50 years now, that the science, the evidence has been building at the, that these are irreplaceable cogs in the machinery of life, these big predators. They have huge impacts on their prey that we've never really kind of considered before. We've always just assumed that the fewer of them, the better. But in fact, it's the other way around, that they have so many good influences uh, on our environment that, you know, it's it's really, it's it's a case of us shooting ourselves, uh, you know, in the foot um, by, by going after these things as vehemently as we have. The number one thing you might want to consider right there in Connecticut, I mean, decades now, you've had a an incredible overpopulation of deer. And there are botanists out there who say that deer are a greater threat to the Eastern forest than climate change. You know, that may be a little bit of hyperbole, but that's what some of the botanists are saying. So this is a serious problem. And I'm not saying that, um, you know, we're gonna cart in a bunch of mountain lions and cure that problem because it's a multi-pronged problem. It's not just a matter of not enough predators, but you know, this is the sort of thing that happens when you disturb this balance, which has been building for, for eons, you know, ever since life began, we've had this pyramid of life with these big predators at the top. You take them out, there are repercussions. And yeah, it's it, 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 all of a sudden we've kind of upset that balance and we're not very good about managing ecosystems without our big predators. So I want to talk a little bit, if I had more time, I'd talk to you about the ecology of fear, which is something you've written about, which I find really fascinating. I think we're a little bit too pressed for time, maybe the, uh, for another day on that. But, you know, one thing that we've seen around the country is if you do change the rules a little bit, if you make them something other than the constantly hunted, mountain lions can repopulate certain areas pretty fast. And and then you've got to do other stuff to, to make sure that they don't get hit by cars because that can kill people, that can kill mountain lions. I, I think in Washington State, they're literally building bridges for mountain lions to get over I-5 or some dangerous road there just for everybody's sake. But 
And I wonder about the yeast. I, I think you've talked to maybe at least one biologist who's interested in seeing whether they could rewild the so-called eastern cougar, say, in the Adirondacks or one of the other places it used to live. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, and, and one one biologist, unfortunately, the late John Landre, uh, actually went through and did did the math to say where could these animals survive. He took a particular look at the Adirondacks, and it, I think it was a three to six hundred cats uh, potentially, given the deer and the and the um, the the density of roads. You know, comparing it to the Black Hills, for example, where you know they have a population there, and that's just one place. I mean, we're talking about up and down the the Appalachians from the Great North Woods of Maine all the way down to the you know to the Okefenokee Swamp, there is plenty of habitat. Again, we're not talking about the Eastern seaboard where there's a, it is chock full of people, but there's still plenty of great areas left with lots of deer, lots of cover, and uh, lots of room for mountain lions who could do, do wonders for the ecology. Right, it, and it is sort of interesting though, I know in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, they go right down to the coast. They'll maybe kill a seal or find a dead seal and drag it into the woods. And when you do that, you're start, you're actually kind of di- diversifying the local ecology. You're t- maybe taking up some maritime nutrients and bringing them out into the woods and stuff like that. It, it would be interesting to see what would happen if you had uh, such a, such an agile predator running around some of the eastern places you just described. So many, yes, so many questions to be answered with that. Unfortunately, you know, the only, as Jason mentioned earlier, the only population we have in the east is is kind of stranded down in the in the south of Florida. Um, they're having a hard time um, making their way north, and so yeah, there's all sorts of questions of of what this what what the forest could look like with with a new top predator in in the mix. And like I say, we've got the potential. We just don't have the political uh, will yet. And we also, you know, a lot of the polls would say that people, the majority of people would welcome such a thing. But again, it's 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 the political spine that I think we're lacking at this point. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Will, Will Stolzenberg. The book is terrific, by the way. If you like this topic at all and you haven't read the book, you should. William Stolzenberg's book, Heart of a Lion, A Lone Cat's Walk Across America. Thanks so much for, be, for being with us. Let's take that break. We'll come back and we'll talk about one more very big animal. Just like we used to do, I'm always walking after midnight searching for you. All right, time to say some thank yous, starting with our technical producer, Kat Pastor. No question about whose side she's on in this. And this episode was produced by producer emeritus Betsy Kaplan, who is also, many of you remember, the host of the old Ranger Betsy show. It's a kids TV program and uh, used to run in weekday afternoons. Remember? My name is Ranger Betsy, and I traveled all around, and I am here to tell you now about the things I found. I'll sing about the mysteries of mountain lions galore and hope that they are not outside scratching at your door. All right. Uh, 
<laughs> I had to get that off my chest. Uh, joining us now is, a, you know, a story about an animal that's maybe a little bit less ferocious, but no less needing to be handled in the right way. Uh, and we're going to talk to the man who really did handle this animal in, in the right way. The animal is Buddy the Beefalo. Uh, the man is Ed Benecki, a retired police officer who served most recently as captain in the Plymouth, Connecticut Police Department. And that is exactly where Buddy's story unfolded. So first of all, Ed Benecki, thanks for taking some time with us. Oh, thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it. And um, so just quickly here, this story kind of uh, spans, I think, 2020 to 2021, but it kind of begins at some kind uh, of um, meat processing place uh, in in Plymouth. What happened there? In uh, early August, uh, there was a a meat packing place in Plymouth and a farmer was offloading one of his cows. When the cow decided that, hey, I don't want to go inside there, I'm going to make my attempt to escape, and successfully did so. And so, so, and that turns out to be something that he was very good at, just generally speaking, making his escape. It, go ahead. Yeah, he's a uh, escape artist to this day, from from what I understand. But uh, yeah, I mean, he saw his opportunity and, and took full advantage of it. So initially. You're a police captain. You, for the same reasons we don't want mountain lions running around on highways because they can get hit and people can get hurt and mountain lions can get hurt. This thing's even bigger than a mountain lion. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> you should begin by saying what is it? a beefalo is, uh, it's, well, the name is pretty obvious. It's, it's a hybridized yeah. animal for meat production. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a cross between a bison and a beef, a beef cow. And uh, he weighs about 1,000 pounds. And what was really concerning to me was he was jet black and at nighttime you couldn't even see him. So he was hanging out right around Route 72 in Plymouth and that's pretty well traveled. So my biggest fear in this whole whole thing was if someone were to hit him, if a car hits a thousand pound animal, it's not going to turn out well for anybody involved. Right. So this forced you to think back to your time at the police academy and the beefalo entrapment class you took there. Every single law enforcement officer takes the beefalo entrapment course. So you got to figure out how you're going to catch this thing. So you you tried yeah, some my, things. Go ahead. My my state police instructor is going to be sad that I actually probably fell asleep through that class, but uh, yeah, there's no class on how to catch a beefalo, unfortunately, but we, we came up with a lot of different ideas on how to, to actually apprehend him. Um, he was just, he outsmarted us. He outsmarted us for, for eight months, which, uh, you know, good for him. Right. You had trailer traps, you had drones. And then to top it all off, at a certain point, Buddy the Beefalo, he gets a name and he becomes kind of a cause celeb. And that means the good people of Plymouth, who are nice people, they're leaving some food out for Buddy, too. They want Buddy to have a happy life. Yeah, he had from what in the end, what we found out was we he had his uh, favorite eating spots, which I mean, it, it turned out to, to hinder our our trapping of him. But, hey, it kept him going through the winter. And uh, that was the biggest thing was trying to keep him fed through the winter because we knew he wasn't going to have anything to eat as soon as uh, the cold started and the vegetation went away. Right. So some of your ploys even had names. Tell us about Operation Sneaky Hoof. (laughs) Operation Sneaky Hoof. Yeah. So during the pandemic, that was kind of like a Friday night, Saturday night kind of fun thing for, for the community to get involved in. So I would go on and I would do all these Facebook, not so much Facebook lives, but I would live post and take pictures and put them up as things were happening. And uh, these are just nights we would go out and try and capture them. And as you said, as you know, in the end, it, for us, it didn't work out as well. 
But uh, Operation Sneaky Hoof, I think we used thermal imaging. We had night vision. We had all the latest and greatest gadgets that we could possibly use to actually see and try and catch them. And again, no matter what what I did, in the in the end, it just didn't work out for me. Right. I mean, there was even one instance, I think this is part of the trailer trap thing, where he did take the bait, right? He came into somewhere where you'd put some food out for him. But if you don't move fast enough with Buddy, then you're you're not going to catch him. Yeah, we almost caught him uh, several times in terms of we, we actually got the gate shut on him. <laughs> so um, after all of this, after all of your considerable efforts... Buddy winds up trapping himself, uh, which maybe is the only way anybody's going to catch Buddy is if Buddy catches Buddy. What He just jumped into a pen? Yeah, so his entire life he was a loner. Um, from the time he spent on the farm to you know him escaping, running around in the woods for eight months, he was he was a loner. And ultimately what got him was, was friendship. He wanted to be around other cows. So he ended up breaking into a, a neighboring, adjoining farm and got in with those cows over there. And that's how he was, he was spotted. He was spotted by um, the grandson of the farmer when he came in and said, Grandpa, there's a cow in there that's not ours. Right. So the next thing you do, of course, is, you know, make a phone call. Hello, Humane Society. I know you usually t- take dogs and cats. I have something a little bit bigger than that. <laughs> no, you had to find someplace that, because yeah. at this point, there's no possibility of just giving Buddy, sending Buddy back to the slaughterhouse. He's a celebrity. No, he, he became an icon here in Plymouth. So, um, I, I orchestrated with the police union and we came up with a GoFundMe page and we actually, when we caught him, we purchased him from the farmer. Um, we made arrangements with Critter Creek farm sanctuary out of Florida. And we actually paid for his vet care while here to, to get transported down to Florida. So um, we did a really good thing. We're trying to, you know, the people did a really good thing. They, they, they did a fantastic thing supporting us to, to do what we had to do to get that animal safely down to Florida. Right. And and you alluded to this, I think, at the beginning of our conversation. It's not like Buddy's learned his lesson, right? I mean, down there at, at this sanctuary, I think it's sort of the largest cow sanctuary or bovine sanctuary in America. He's still jumping fences and stuff, right? He's still jumping fences. Um, when I went down after he arrived, he took one look at me and was like, I want no part of this guy. <laughs> and ended up, yeah, ended up jumping away and hopping over the fence and and I actually had to leave the area for him to jump back in. Um, and I got to say, the people down at Critter Creek did a smart thing. They paired him up with a cow that he he quickly became friends with. And Buddy wanted, he he's in quarantine, wanted to wander, jumped over the fence, and this cow immediately would give him up. Start mooing at him, just kind of screaming, hey, you know, you're not supposed to do that. Get back in here. He'd hang his head, slither over the fence again, and come back into the pen. So all it took was a good woman in his life? I, I think in his term, I think it's he's got a few women in his life. Oh, okay. Well, I don't want to uh, – this isn't that kind of celebrity kind of inside edition show, so we're not going to pry into his personal <laughs> well, that's life. Good. Yeah, so Ed Benecki, it's been great to talk to you, retired police officer who served most recently as captain in the Plymouth, Connecticut Police Department and is both the friend and adversary, apparently, of Buddy the Beefalo. <laughs> All right, so thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for and having me. Uh, we'll be back with more later this week. I could be a millionaire Raising up the beef alone